We're going to be doing that throughout eternity. It's good to be doing that right now. We're wired to do that. Strikes a chord in our hearts. Thank you for the privilege, freedom to come here this morning. Would you be blessed by our praise? We long that you would just receive that and would somehow minister to you. What we want to do here, this place this morning, is we want to, we want to bring you glory. We want to exalt your Son, Jesus Christ, and we want to see your fame, your fame spread in our own hearts and leading us to fuller and deeper commitment and beyond that, Lord, to the world outside and around us. Lord, as you meet with us here today, I'm asking that your, your Holy Spirit would have just absolute freedom in this place. You would make a deep connection with every heart. You'd manifest presence here and whatever is needed. That you would give that out of your abundant riches through Christ. All across this city, Lord, there are over 350 churches, gatherings in the name of Christ, coming to praise you and look into your truth. Bless them, I pray, even as we're asking you to bless us, bless them. There's really one church in this city, the church of Jesus Christ. Build your kingdom today here. Thank you for meeting here with us right now. Thank you for your word that's going to go out here in a few minutes. God, this is always true, sometimes more acutely aware of it than others. Oh, I desperately need your spirit to speak the word through me today. I just want to depend upon you. I know that there's nothing in my humanity that can say anything that will have eternal value, but you, you can, your spirit can through your word, you do that. Trusting you too. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Before we move on in our service, I just want to take a moment here to do something critical. We are blessed in this church with some great leadership. I'm not talking about my own. I'm talking about our staff and the other elders that are a part of this body that serve so faithfully. And I've asked one of our elders, Greg Rumsey, just to come and share something with you this morning. Good morning. About three months ago, um, I was traveling in Seattle. Got a phone call from my boss. It was on a business trip. And he said, I want you to consider and move to Seattle. And, uh, this wasn't the first time that he had asked me that. The first time was about six years ago, and he clearly shut every door, and it was very clear. So this time it was, um, I've got, my kids are a little older, and, and we're 
great church and involved and life's good. And why would, no, I don't want to go to Seattle. But I told him I'd pray about it. Um, got back to town, met with them and told them that, all right, God's in it. I'll do it. Um, so I went home and told my wife the same thing. <clears throat> so we <clears throat> embarked on a three-month daily, all throughout the day, um, seeking the Lord for his face and for his um, clarity. It's not a difficult decision to, uh, I've been up here 23 years, um, to go move to another company and start a, move to another city and start a company. Um, fact of the matter is God has rocked our world in the last three months. He has not opened doors. He's blown them off the hinge. Um, and in ways that I got to make sure we journal it all because there's a huge uh, testimony mm. in it. Um, so a week from tomorrow, we're getting on a plane and moving to Seattle. Um, it's bittersweet. Um, man, we love this church. And the worship and the leadership and the pastors and just what God's doing here. It's just been a blessing to be a part of it. So I just want to say thank you. Thanks, Greg. Greg is, yeah, why don't you do that? Greg and his wife, Dina, have been such a critical part of this church body and Greg serving as an elder leadership uh, that you brought to that, brother. I am so grateful. Servant heart. Incredible positive attitude. Uh, Dina began an incredible ministry with American Heritage Girls that has touched a lot of lives. And we, we hate to see you go. I had no idea what God was going to do when you walked through the doors of this church a few years back. But it's been great to watch that. And I know it's going to continue to happen. We're going to pray for that right now. Is your wife in here? Or is she? No. Dina in here? No. We're going to just... Say a prayer, a blessing over Greg as they get prepared to head out here. Would you stand and join me kind of in solidarity with that? Thanking God for the shepherd here that was here for a period of time. Father, I am, I am just grateful for your orchestration of the events of life. and Grateful that you allow lives to cross paths for very specific purposes. And in hindsight here, it's very clear the purposes that you had in bringing Greg and Dina and their family here, just the ministry that was taking place, the leadership that was given on the elder board and through the worship council and Dina's ministry there and American Heritage Girls. It's just been fun to watch your spirit work. And so, based upon just that incredible picture in faith, we pray for the next chapter. We don't know what it is, but you do. You have that all planned out. You have another ministry setting. I know that no matter if Greg is going to be drawing his paycheck from the marketplace. He's going to be giving his heart to ministry. Same thing with his wife. I'm grateful for that. Fill him with your spirit. Use him in power to build your kingdom. Uh, Open up for them greater arenas of influence as they continue to walk with Christ. Thank you for them. Celebrate uh, what 
we have been able to enjoy in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, brother. You may be seated. Hi. My name is Brad Suter. I don't know if you know me. I've been gone for about five weeks and had a... Just an opportunity to receive your prayers. I know over those five weeks, went down and had both of my knees replaced, and here I am. And probably, yeah, thank the Lord. Feeling better than I did, I think, than when I left with the old knees, and I'm only four or five weeks in here. And uh, I know, and I told uh, several people about this uh, over the last few weeks, but the success of that and the recovery, I, I know it's because this church was praying. And I want to thank you for that. I, I was, I told the first service, I was kind of a rock star down in Seattle at Virginia Mason. And I'm, I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean that literally. I, um, you know, they have milestones that they want you to reach before they will release you from the hospital or rehab center, you know, and I, on the phone before going, they said, well, how long am I going to need to be there? And they said, a month. And so I said, that ain't happening. Um, But we'll see when I get down there. And two days after my surgery, I had reached every milestone. And they said, man, we'd release you today if there was uh, somebody that could do that. They'll be here in the morning. We'll release you tomorrow morning. So three days into a, it should have been a month-long um, stay, I was sent back home, and rehab has been going great, and I'm very thankful. I'm very thankful for you and your your prayers. And I, I do want to say this publicly, too. I am very thankful. I've been gone five weeks And it was five weeks that involved a very critical period of time in the life of this church. In the midst of a a major paradigm shift, kicking off a a new ministry, it really will be the central ministry uh, other than Sunday morning of our church, our life groups, an entirely new paradigm for those that we have spent months as elders working, getting ready uh, to move forward with. And I had no idea when we were planning that months ago that coming right into the launch with the church body that I was going to be pulled out of the scenario and gone for five weeks. And yet the leadership team, Pastor Chris and the rest of the staff and elders stepped in. And that thing went better than I could have ever anticipated. Um, We have, last count here, we kicked off our life group's uh, two Sundays ago, and we have about 50% of our 600 Sunday attenders that are committed to life groups. About 300 people are involved in that. And so I just want to encourage you that are in life groups to keep the course. Learn to do life together. Like that little video that we saw kind of unleashing the disciples, making disciples model. I believe that that is the intent of the New Testament, and so I'm excited about that. I think I neglected to say this in first service, but the Lord's reminding me now. 
I think we have 12 or 13 groups, and they're all full. And I'm aware that there is a short list of some additional people that want to be involved in a life group that we currently don't have uh, any leaders uh, to start a new group yet. Uh, But I want you to know that we will diligently work on that and when God provides uh, the leaders and the structure for that to take place, we will be um, informing you of that so that you can uh, get involved uh, in a life group. If you just want to get your name on that list, you haven't yet, you can certainly contact our church office and talk to Pastor Chris Chaw, our pastor over life groups, who really spearheaded uh, the kickoff uh, during the last five weeks. So I encourage you to do that. Now for the task at hand. Would you please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. We have had a summer vacation from Romans, but we're back. And we're going we're gonna to hit it steady. And we've come to Romans chapter 7. We're in the 14th verse in a verse-by-verse journey through this, what I believe is the greatest letter ever penned. Now, I'm not going to try, it's been quite a while since we've been here, try to bring you up to speed on, on six and a half chapters. We'll jump right into the text and hopefully... Um, It'll either be a standalone if you haven't been a part of that or you'll have your memory jogged as we go through it. But let me say this as we begin. The passage of Scripture that we're going to cover today, at least to get an overview of today, verses 14 to 25, is one of the most controversial passages of Scripture in the Bible. And there are a couple of reasons for that. One obvious reason is that it's hard to interpret. It's hard to understand. But that coupled with this reason, that it is a passage of Scripture that is vitally relevant to our day-to-day life. In fact, there is not many subjects that could be dealt with that would be more practically relevant to our day-to-day living living because the subject matter here is the daily battle against sin. Therefore, because the passage is hard to understand and because it is dealing with such a critical subject matter, the discussions surrounding this passage and the views that people have of this passage are passionate views because they really matter. And so the controversy is a passionate one. It's one that has been um, ongoing since Paul crafted the letter some 2,000 years ago and it's going to continue into the future. And I'm not... Uh, naive to think that we're going to solve the issue here today. But what I do want to do is I want to do my best as the shepherd of this body, the lead shepherd of this body, to try to 
present to you what I believe the text is saying. Let me give you the outline that's not necessarily true just of this message, but this is rarely said, but it really is a common um, process by which when I'm in study and I'm looking at the Word of God and getting ready to stand up and say to you, thus saith the Lord, that I am working through these three concepts. It's a very simple outline, and it's an outline that has to take place in order based upon just three phrases, the what, the so what, and the now what. The what, the so what, and the now what. I think really almost every message that I preach could somehow be fit into that structure. And here's kind of the details of that structure, the what. First question is, what does the text say? What does the text say? You have to first understand what the text is saying if you're going to be able to move on to the second point of the outline. The second point of the outline is this, the so what. What does the text mean? It said something. What does it mean? And then the third point is this, now what? Which is, what must I now do? about what the text has said and what it means. Because the Bible was not given to increase our knowledge. It was meant to change our lives. So it's really critical. I hope that you can see the obvious there. It is so very critical that you understand the answer to the first question. Because if you cannot understand what the text says then you will be ill-equipped to move to the second point and understand what the text means. And if you don't understand what it says and means, how in the world are we going to be able to understand how to apply it? So this being a controversial passage that's difficult to understand, we're going to need to spend considerable energy here this morning trying to figure out what the text is saying. First of all, let me read it, and then I'm going to identify the nature of the controversy, but I think it'll be pretty obvious when I read it. Starting with verse 14. Paul writes, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. That was Paul's description of the battle that he had with sin. But here's the question. Here's the question around which the great controversy dances. Of what period of his life is Paul writing about? Is Paul here writing about himself prior to salvation or after salvation? If after salvation, what part of his Christian life? What I want to try to do this morning is to answer that question. That's the what question. That's just on the very initial surface trying to figure out what is the text saying. Because you see, again, if we get that wrong, it's going to be difficult or impossible for us then to answer the second question, what does it mean? And the third question, what must I do about what it says it means? So let's try to unpack the answer to the first question. And what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to try to show you what the common views are in evangelical Christianity related to that controversy. First group is this. These are not in any order of priority or number of adherents, but first group is this those who believe that Paul is writing about his life prior to his salvation experience. That he is writing about his life before he was justified and made right with God through the sacrifice of Christ. And there is a group that subscribe to this view and they draw that conclusion based upon these statements that Paul makes. Let me just point them out to you. Paul's description of himself. First of all, verse 14. He writes, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 18. I know that nothing good dwells in me. 23. I'm captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 24, wretched man that I am. Those who hold to this view say, how could those statements be made by Paul if he's talking about himself as saved? Particularly troublesome are the statements that he's sold under sin or captive to the law of sin. And so the argument goes, that cannot be Paul describing his Christian experience. That would be a blatant contradiction 
to something that Paul had just written earlier in chapter 6. Let me show it to you. Verses 17 and 18. This is Paul writing about the situation that we're in before Christ and what happens when we come to Christ. Verse 17 of chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, that's pre-salvation, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. If Paul's teaching is that the saved, those who have been justified, have been set free from sin, then the description he gives of himself here in Romans chapter 7, sold under sin, captive to the law of sin, well then, it must be that he's writing about his life as an unsaved person. Another point. Paul said in verse 18 that nothing good dwells in him. That is in his sin, depending upon your translation, in his flesh or in his sinful nature. And isn't this the same Paul that wrote Philippians 2, chapter 2, verse 13, which says that God dwells within the believer working both the will and to act according to his good purpose. How then, the argument goes, could Paul say, nothing good dwells in him. Therefore, Romans seven, fourteen to 25 must be Paul the unsaved. But let's take a closer look. Because as we take a closer look, some problems begin to develop with that viewpoint. First of all, Paul's desires and delight. First category, Paul's desires and delight. What are they in 14 to 25? Verse 18, he says that he has a desire to do what is right. That sound like the heart of someone who is bound and lost in sin? He goes on in verse 19, talking about the good that he wants to do. Verse 21, the right that he wants to do. The difficulty increases as Paul's passion increases. Verse 22, he writes about his delight in the law of God in his inner being. Let me state that again. Paul says in verse 22 that he has a delight in the law of God in his inner being. That statement is categorically inconsistent, inconsistent, and contradictory to the life of an unsaved person. In other words, an unsaved person cannot, would not say that they delight in the law of God in their inner being. Why? Because their inner being is in rebellion to God and his law. Matter of fact, that's exactly what Paul says a few verses later in chapter 8, verse 7, speaking of the non-Christian. Listen, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 
So Paul's desires and delight pose a significant problem for those that want to say, this is Paul, the unsaved. Because the desires and delights of Paul are not the desires and delights of an unsaved person. Second category, Paul's self-portraits. The self-portraits Paul gives of himself. We've looked at one here in Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25. Let me show you another one. And here is the question. Once we're done, we're going to hold these two portraits up and ask the question, are they identical? Or are they even similar? Because the portrait that we're going to look at now, Philippians chapter 3, this portrait is Paul writing about his life and his attitude about himself prior to salvation. Kind of his pedigree, what he held as being noteworthy about himself prior to his salvation. This was his attitude. Philippians chapter 3, 4 to 6. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Did you hear that last statement? As to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is talking about his pre-Christian Jewish pedigree. What was noteworthy about his life prior to his salvation in his own attitude. And he gives a list of great qualifications there that used to be bragging points with him. And he ends that with the statement that he was blameless or perfectly obedient in obeying God's law as he saw himself pre-Christ. Now, I ask you, hold that portrait up against Romans seven fourteen to 25. Are they identical? I mean, Philippians 3, perfectly righteous. Romans 7, I can't do one single thing right. I mean, they are not only not identical, there isn't one shred of similarity at all in those two portraits. Here's the point. The point of the portrait in Philippians chapter 3 is this. Prior to knowing Christ, prior to placing his faith in Christ, Who did Paul place his faith in? Himself. Himself. Romans chapter 7. Is Paul placing his faith in himself? Oh my word. I know that nothing good dwells in me, in my flesh. I can't do the good I want to do and I find myself doing the very things that I hate to do. 
So the point being, the drastic difference of those two portraits would indicate that Paul in Romans chapter 7 is not talking about himself as an unsaved person. And then the final category, I want you to see an abrupt, a sharp transition that happens in the text, starting at verse 14. You see, verses 7 through 13, Paul is writing about his experience, his spiritual journey, and he is writing about past experiences, past tense. Listen, verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. That happened past tense. Verse 11, sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Past tense. Verse 13, it was sin producing death in me. Past tense. Now you get to verse 14. And there is an abrupt transition where Paul moves from past tense to present tense. And for the rest of the chapter, he never goes back. It's present tense throughout. Verse 14, I am of the flesh. Verse 15, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. 18, I have the desire, but not the ability. 19, I do not do the good I want. The evil I do not want, I keep on doing. 22, I delight in the law of God. Verse 25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind. With my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Do you see it? Present, 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 present. Now, those who... Hold to the view here that Paul is writing about his past life in Romans 7, 14 to 25. Prior to salvation, they have no reasonable explanation of what to do with the present tense of the discussion in these verses. There is no adequate explanation that can be given. And so they just... Not exactly sure how they justify that, but just in their uh, teaching of that viewpoint, just seem to kind of wiggle around through that issue. Viewpoint number one. My conclusion is that Paul's desires and his delights that his self-portraits and that the transition he makes in verse 14 through the rest of the text make it apparent that Paul must be talking about his Christian life, not his unchristian experience. Second viewpoint. Some hold to the view that Paul is writing about the almost saved. Not the unsaved, the almost saved. This viewpoint, those who claim that this is the improper interpretation say that this is Paul in the midst of a transition. Just like 
all the Jews need to go through a transition from the old law to the new covenant. That Paul here is in the midst of a transition. That this is really depicting a person who has awakened to the reality of their need, their hopelessness and guilt and sin, but have not yet fully come into faith in Christ for their justification so that they have not yet been made right with God. They just understand that they have a problem, but they don't yet experience the solution to the problem. It's the almost saved. One of the viewpoints, one of the verses that they would use to give validity to that would be verse 24, where Paul writes, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the connection they make, the anchor they make is this. You see there, that's a man who understands the need, their wretched state, but does not yet know the Savior. Who will deliver me? Problem there is that there is no indicated pause from verse 24 to verse 25 in the text. There's no evidence that there should be a separation of the thought. That the question asked in verse 24, in fact, is a setup, really a precursor, a truth that Paul has been driving at from the beginning to get to verse 25. It's not that he stated verse 24 and said, Oh, wretched man that I am lost. What am I going to do? I don't know who, else, who could possibly save me. And then the light comes on. Oh, my word, it's Jesus. No. It's been Jesus in the view from the get-go. Some try to change the order and take verse 25 and slide it up in prior to verse 24 so that the last verse is verse 24, highlighting this wretched state of confusion and helplessness not yet knowing any real experience of the Savior. So this is the viewpoint of the almost saved. This viewpoint, to me, really does not hold much water. It has some I think some important things to commend it. Here is something that is beneficial about it. There is an attempt here to take all that the text says, not just ignore the present tense, the prolific present tense of 14 to 25. They're really trying to take all of what the text says and not ignore some of the terminology. 
And so in taking all of what the text says, they navigate through it like this. Is this an unsaved person? Certainly not. It cannot be an unsaved person because Paul is describing having delight in the law of the Lord in the inner being. That can't be an unsaved person. Therefore, A, it's not an unsaved person. But B, is it a saved person? Well, certainly not. It can't be a saved person because a saved person is not sold under slavery to sin and are not individuals who live an absolutely defeated life. So it can't be saved and it can't be unsaved. What is it then? It's an almost saved person, someone on the way to being saved. However, what this verse doesn't do is offer any reasonable explanation. Verses 14 to 25, really, for the present tense reality where Paul is saying, this is my experience today as I write this. Not last week, not last month, not three years ago, but this is the reality right now. Here's the third view. Saved but immature. Saved but immature. Those who hold to this view anchor it to the following. This losing battle that Paul paints of his life. Yes, he's talking about a period of time when he's saved. But look at what he says about it. He can't do what he wants to do. He's doing the things that he hates to do. It's this portrait of defeat that he paints. So what that must be then is Paul saved, but not Paul with any kind of spiritual maturity. This is spiritually infant Paul. Second emphasis to validate this in a astute perception of the text. Look at how many times the personal pronoun is used in 14 to 25. I count in the ESV, I think, 25 uses of the word I. Plus, some other uses of the we to where the picture being painted is here by the author of the text is a life that is centered on self, on I. And so those who hold to the view that this is the portrait of Paul saved but immature, that validates it in that Paul has not yet come to full surrender to Jesus Christ, so Jesus is everything. He's a Christian, yes, but he's an immature Christian who is still trying to live life in a self-centered way. Saved but immature. Here is what I believe is a weakness and a danger of that interpretation. 
that interpretation, it doesn't, it doesn't have to, but often it does. It lends itself to the interpretation that here is the normative pattern for Christian living. You come to the place and you put your faith in Christ. You get saved. You're justified. You're made right with God. And then you live in that place of justification for a season of life. Most likely a long season of life where you live in defeat in the daily struggle against sin. Yes, you're saved, but you are losing the battle on a regular basis. And then at some distant point in the future, something takes place in which you enter into the second compartment of the Christian life. That compartment where you discover the secret to living life in victory instead of defeat. And you kind of, just like you went through the doorway from unsaved to saved, you go through another doorway from saved and immature to mature. And then both of those doorways are now behind you forever. And you're going to be in this place moving forward. Problem with that is that's just not the teaching of Scripture. Flat out throughout the New Testament, that is just not the teaching of Scripture. Here are some good points, some benefits that commend this view. First of all, here's a good truth. When you get saved, you are not done with sin. Has anybody discovered that? When you get saved and you wake up the next morning and you put your feet on the floor, you come face to face that day with the battle against sin. And that happens the next day that you get up and every other day that you get up. When you are saved, the battle with sin is not over. That's a truth. Secondly, this is critical, commendable in this view. You cannot live the Christian life in your own power. Maybe this is what God brought you here today to hear. If there is a great Truth coming through Romans seven fourteen to 25. The great truth is this. Once you are saved, it doesn't matter how deep your desire is. It doesn't matter how sincere your heart is. It doesn't matter how committed your will is. You, in your power, the I is not going to defeat sin in the daily battle. It will not happen. Not only that, this is another truth that Paul is teaching here. In fact, it's one of the key truths that Paul is teaching throughout Romans chapter 7, and it is this, that the law of God 
doesn't have the power to help you live the Christian life. I mean, he says that explicitly and directly. You see, what he does in chapter 7, 7 is a parenthetical statement. Just like chapter 6, I'll do this very quick. Try to track with me. I believe it'll help make this thing understandable. Romans 1 through 5, there is the development of the truth that you are justified. You are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. He is teaching that truth that faith in Christ alone saves. It's what gives, enables the grace of God to make you right with God. And then he makes a great statement at the end of Romans chapter 5. He says something about God's grace. He says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Or grace superabounds. But he doesn't only say something about grace. He says something about the law of God. And those two statements, one about grace and one about the law of God were misinterpreted and misused. And people were taking Paul's teaching and saying a couple of different things. Related to grace, they were saying this. Wow, man, if grace defeats sin, if grace superabounds where sin increases, I'm going to go out and sin so that grace will increase. Antinomianism. And so Paul, in a parenthetical statement, stopped at the end of chapter 5, wrote chapter 6 to refute that erroneous doctrine. And he, if it, you understand chapter 6, he dealt it a death blow. Then in Romans chapter 7, there were some that were saying, man, Paul, you are hard on the law. You are saying that the law actually incites us to sin more. That the law, we're actually set free from the law? What do you mean by set free from the law? The law is everything. Speaking to a Jewish audience here. And so what Paul does in chapter 7 is he clears up misuse of his teaching. He, in a parenthetical statement, he pauses long enough to say, here is the purpose of the law. The law reveals sin in your life. The law actually incites you to sin more, not because it's bad, but because your nature is corrupt. And when you hear what God wants you to do, your sinful nature says, man, I'm going to do the opposite. And so the law actually makes you sin more. And then thirdly, what the law does is it brings you to the end of yourself. And so what is Paul doing in chapter 7? He's clearing up the confusion. He is showing in a parenthetical statement what the purpose of the law is. He clears up his teaching about grace in chapter 6. He clears up his teaching about law in chapter 7. So that Romans chapter 5 Ending with justification by grace flows right into Romans chapter 8. Which is a life of victory in the spirit of God. Meaning, there should not be this 
in-between period between justification and between living out the power that God wants you to live out in victory. You don't have to live in this middle period. It's not the normative pattern of Scripture that you get saved and that you then spend the majority of your life in defeat, getting up every morning facing the battle of sin and being defeated when you put your head on the pillow until finally something happens where you step into a place of victory from that point forward. That's not the pattern of Scripture. That's not the intention of God. So I think... That view that this is Paul writing about himself as a believer, but as an immature believer, is a view that can lead you in a wrong direction to assume that, man, this life of defeat that I'm living is just normal. A or B Man, I need to find that magic pill that's going to make the difference and take me to the new compartment of Christianity and shut the door of the old one and forevermore I'm going to live in this new compartment, this place of victory. Because Scripture, again, does not teach that. What then is the answer. Who is the man of Romans 7? I think the answer is this. The man of Romans 7 is the Paul who wrote Romans 7 when he wrote Romans 7. Paul, try to make this clear. I don't know. uh, At times I wonder if it's clear in the hearing. It's clear in the mind of the speaker, but I don't. There's always a chasm between trying to get it to be clear in the mind of the hearer. You see, I think the way that we need to deal with this text is to take it for what it says. And Paul, writing in the present tense, is saying over and over again, this is my present day reality. But he is saying This is my present day reality when my life is oriented around I. 25 times, verse 14 to 25. In other words, there is not some magic compartment that you step into in your Christian development in which you go from defeated life to a victorious life and that door shut and forevermore you're going to be over here. I think what Paul is saying is that at any point in your Christian life, even Paul, the great apostle, the prolific church author, I mean the prolific church planner, the author of Scripture, the developer of leaders, this mature man, Paul is saying, I can get up tomorrow, and if I start living with my life centered around myself, the battle is lost. The battle is lost. 
When it's me in my power trying to use my religion and the law of God to live a sanctified, holy life, I absolutely fail in that process. That'll be true today, tomorrow, and every other day until I die, if that's how I orient my life. So what then is the truth? Paul here is writing this to transition into Romans chapter 8. And here is the significant component. It's a significant omission in Romans chapter 7. Read Romans chapter 7, 14 to 25. What do you not hear about one time in those verses? Not one time. You hear nothing about the Holy Spirit. Not one mention of the Holy Spirit. Follow the development again. Please try to stay with me. Romans chapter 1 through 5. Justification by faith alone. In the mighty grace of God that accomplishes it solely on the work of Christ. Parenthetical statement, Romans chapter 6 and 7. But the flow from Romans 5 to 8, Romans chapter 8 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. I'll argue that till I put my head in the coffin. It is the chapter of life in the Spirit. It is the chapter about what is available to the Christian living in the power of the Spirit, not under the old code of the law, but under the new law of the Spirit. And it is a life that has the ability to be lived in victory so that you can go from justification by faith alone, in Christ alone, through grace alone, right into a life lived in the power of the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, because Romans 5 connects right to Romans chapter 8. So the applicational point that I don't have any time to unpack this morning except just to state it is this. If you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, every morning when you get up, and you stare the battle against sin in the face, here's what you need every moment of every day. You need the power of the Spirit of God, or you're going to lose. That your life needs to be oriented around how you can live in the power of the Spirit of God understanding that in your own power you are impotent and that even the law of God, even though it's holy and righteous and good, you're never going to buy 
spiritual gymnastics take the law and the truth of God and work them together to make yourself holy. You see, Paul is teaching a truth here in Romans 7. And the truth he's trying to teach to the Jew is this. Just like you can never justify yourself, you can never sanctify yourself. And just like by obedience to the law of God, you can never be justified and saved in the same way by obedience to the law of God. You can never be sanctified and made holy. It is the spirit of the living God that has to work in you to get that done so that your life needs to be about Finding out how to do what Jesus did. The perfect God-man. 100% God, 100% man. How Jesus walked every moment in the power of the Spirit. That was the key to his ministry. That's why God made it so apparent At his baptism, as the heavens were opened and the Spirit descended upon him as a dove, it was in the power of the Spirit that he walked out into the desert and he defeated the devil in a 40-day battle. It is in the power of the Spirit that he made blind eyes see and lame legs walk and spoke to the dead and told them to get up. It's in the power of the Spirit that he lived day by day. It's only in the power of the Spirit that you and I, if we're going to live in victory, are going to defeat the battle with sin. That is the only way. And in the hands of the Spirit of God, the law of God, can be used in power to help transform us like the Son of God for the glory of the Father. That's the challenge of the Christian life. So I think Paul is saying, even me as the apostle, if I live my life around I, defeat, defeat, defeat whether that's yesterday or in the present moment or any time in the future. But if I can orient my life around life in the Spirit, that's when I'm going to live in power. That's when the resurrection power of Jesus will be mine. Stand up and let me pray for you. Worship team, would you come? Folks, I'm on this daily journey just like you are. I'm, I am convinced there's many in here that are far beyond me in the journey. But I know this is true. I know we need the Spirit every moment of every day to live in victory. And we need to come to the conclusion that Paul came to. 
that in myself, in my flesh, no good thing dwells. That I know. And that if I don't have the Spirit of God, no good thing will I do. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would take your truth, that you'd apply it, apply it to my heart, Lord, where I have misstated your word, forgive me, where I have stated it correctly, validate it, plant it deeply, water it, and from it bring great fruit for your glory. Fill us with your spirit, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.